And we are live, and my microphone is not muted. Welcome to Viral Transmissions Episode 3. I'm Joe Fulgham. Uh, that's Torin Atkinson. Up there is Dr. Rob Tarswell, and above me is Dr. Simon Pratt, who is a lecturer on political science and cool stuff like that. Uh, I'll let Rob... Rob, you've been doing the most of the research on this. I'll just hand this over to you. Welcome, everybody. All right. So our guest tonight is Dr. Simon Pratt. He's a lecturer in uh, politics and international studies at the University of Bristol. His research areas include international security and then research on the philosophy of social science, including the uh, meanings of um, international relations. So we're particularly interested in getting, we, we, we went from the, the lowest possible level view, looking at the virus itself last week, and now we're kind of zooming out to the highest level. And so let me just start then uh, by saying, hey, thanks for coming. Uh, you had a bit of an odyssey yourself that leads to you yeah. being here tonight, and perhaps you might, you know, want to talk a bit about that, because that I was like interesting. In and of it. I, yeah. I will, yeah. yeah. Um, and in the in the in that context, I guess what I'd be interested in is uh, from the political point of view, what is a pandemic as a global event? Um. So. So I'll, I'll just I'll, like I'll, I'll be transparent here and say I, like I admit that I kind of fed you that question because something really interesting is going on here uh, amidst all of the misery and panic, um, and that is that. Uh, we're having something that's actually worthy of the name global event. Some of my colleagues have suggested that it could be the first global event. And I, um, I think that's probably a bit of a stretch. Uh, I, I can posit other ones. Did they but, forget uh, about the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs? Uh, oh yeah, well that, you know, uh, <laughs> colonialism, 9-11. Um, but there's something about this particular, this particular crisis where every, everyone across the world uh, is facing some some similar uh, fears. You know, all across the world, people are or or will shortly see many in their community becoming ill and dying. Uh, and across the world, people are implementing similar mitigation measures, uh, physical distancing, which in turn leads to social distancing. And this isn't to say that all of us experience the hardships or uh, problems of COVID nineteen in the same way, right? Of course, there'll be huge differences in terms of access to healthcare resources, whether governments uh, actually support the poor and vulnerable or leave them to swing in the breeze. Um, and, and so, but there's, but all of us are kind of across the world, we're glued to the news We're we're seeing the same type of threat in a kind of broad sense. And so, so that's what I mean when, when I say that this pandemic is a global event. And it's interesting because global events can introduce the possibility of global identities because all of our, our identities, our political, political identities are built out of uh, shared experiences or at least shared narratives about our place in the world. Mm. And so if all of us across the world are experiencing something shared, then maybe that holds the, the potential for some new global stories about who we are. And, um, or, you know, when this is all over, we'll all go back to the status quo, status quo ante. Uh, and one thing that I wonder is whether in order to confront another global crisis, which is climate change, we need this as like 
we need something like a pandemic moving very swiftly mm -hmm. to train us to understand ourselves in global terms in order to confront another global crisis which is ongoing but moving so slowly that we can maybe tell ourselves that it isn't happening yeah i so i remember one of the kind of i think it was an article that was going around before the covid thing that was trying to reach out to people about you know a host of social justice issues and things like that and the title was i don't know how to convince you to care about other people and maybe the answer is global pandemic will teach you that that's a good thing is that kind of what you're saying not quite um i would not say i would not go so far as to say that there's some kind of uh potential for radical empathy here there are Damn. some people who they, they actually just aren't very empathetic. And uh, I leave it to the political psychologists. Uh, and I am assuredly not a political psychologist mm -hmm. to determine what sort of uh, what sort of institutional situations make make empathy possible when before there was none. Right. Um, I would say that if we're to confront something like a like a like a global pandemic, let alone glo global climate change, we need to. Um, we need to think of ourselves as linked or our institutions and our, our contexts as uh, linked or entangled with those of other communities in other places. And um, I, I saw an interesting article recently which said that right now to deal with the crisis, all of New York's, all of New York State's hospitals have been incorporated into a single hospital system, sharing, sharing resources, sharing personnel. Uh, and something a little bit like that, or at least something moving in the direction of that, might have to take place in order to coordinate truly good uh, global responses to this. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that's really happened in Europe, and it might not need to happen in Europe, but certainly as the global south starts to get hit really hard, I, I wonder if if something like that is is likely to to, mm -hmm. to get set up across countries. So less of a less of a teaching empathy, but more of a maybe even from a selfish point of view, recognizing that working together is what needs to happen for everybody to do well, including yourself, yeah. the selfish person. Okay. Uh, I I wouldn't even necessarily put it in terms of selfishness or or self interested coordination. I would just say um learning to cooperate mm -hmm. um like like cooperation uh, cooperation is a habit we get into it's a practice we can adopt and it isn't necessarily incorporated in in or bound up in careful self-conscious calculation of cost and benefit mm -hmm. you know if we're used to interacting with people across borders or across institutional boundaries and we, you know we get used to that type of coordination that, that type of cooperation we start doing it it, become, okay. it becomes the everyday for us, and I hope that is the direction we'll all move here. Uh, I, I would share that hope, yeah, yeah. So tell us um, how you ended up where you are. Let's zoom in a little bit and get the, get the, Simon, the Simon story <laughs> or, or narrative, if you prefer, within this global event. So I'm glad you asked because there is a sense in which uh, I and my 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 spouse are kind of, in some respects, emblematic of some of the problems and also privileges uh, that that characterize the kind of wealthy Western experience of this right now. So I got hired at the University of Bristol, and um, in order to make it possible to sustain my relationship, I married my partner um, because I needed to do so for immigration. And you know, obviously, I, I loved him, so why not? 
pull the trigger on that. Uh, and so we, we, you know, uh, we got married and we moved to the UK and we, we started building a life, but, um, he has a, a, a minor heart problem, which still raises his risk should he fall ill. And we were looking around us and seeing the UK, the UK government talk about, uh, building herd immunity, uh, and, uh, looking at the state of the NHS, the UK's sort of so UK's version of Medicare and, and it's, uh, it's state after like a decade and a half of cuts. And we thought, you know, we should probably move our asses back to Canada for this. I'm on sabbatical right now. So this doesn't really affect my ability to work. And my husband is still studying and his studies are now all online. So we, uh, we, we made a very fast decision. We booked an, uh, one way Air Canada tickets. We packed our bags. We installed a friend in our flat because he, he was doing lab work near campus. And this way he doesn't have to take a bus to work. Um, and he takes care of our plants. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, uh, a, like a very stressful trip through Heathrow. And we landed in Vancouver. Um, we, we spent some of my, uh, some, he got, uh, my husband got fired from his part-time job. Uh, we spent some of my, uh, my professor dollars on an Airbnb to quarantine in. I called it my, uh, our Airbnb. Um, and, uh, and now we're out of it and we've sublet an apartment, which we'll be moving into shortly. And so what are some of the things that, that stand out here? Well, first is the extraordinary financial privilege of having a job that I can do completely remotely and the financial capacity to make these sorts of decisions for my health. Second, the fact that we are uh, able to move seamlessly between two different countries and take advantage of two different healthcare systems. And so when we look at the UK and we say, wow, oh my God, this is going to be a massive fuck up. uh, And it's one that could threaten us. We have the privilege of transporting ourselves to a place that seems to be doing very well, all things considered, which is uh, BC, uh, a model of responsible governance at this time. and um, yeah, so none of this is available to, to people who have lost their jobs and don't have savings. Uh, it's not available to people who, uh, who don't, say, have more than one citizenship or the capacity to, to work and live in multiple places. So uh, that was my odyssey, and I'm very grateful to be here. I almost cried when we got through customs, mm-hmm. and we're like, we're here. Like, like we're about as safe as we can be um, this side of North, yeah. uh, South Korea. As it turns out, um, yeah. BC, in, in terms of the English-speaking world, you, you are in the epicenter of safety, at, at least. At- also, now, I'm, now I can uh, do grocery shops for my mother and uncle, who are both living alone and more concerned. Um, so, so, yeah, that was my odyssey, as you called it. Yeah, very good. So, and then interestingly enough, we find out this morning that the Prime Minister of the UK, presumably who ought to be among the most protected people is now been admitted to hospital and they're downplaying the seriousness of it. But this is, of course, is what government PR blacks do um, Mm -hmm. when, when a a leader has to be admitted to hospital. Wow. So the virus literally reaches to the highest levels of UK society right now. Uh, Yeah. Um... What were his policies? About this whole, like, was he, uh, you know, a latecomer like Trump? Um, so it looked as though initially um, the the UK government was um, following the advice of some epidemiologists from Oxford that were suggesting that um, the UK could avoid the gigantic economic impact of shutting shutting so much down, and so basically uh, shelter the old people and the vulnerable people. 
um, let the younger, younger people get sick, and then uh, they'll just take the hit. The rate of hospitalization will be low enough that the NHS can handle it. And at a certain point, the population will have become uh, so broadly immune that the, the pandemic will be over. Uh, and then some... And then when it was, the, the garbage assumptions of this model became increasingly apparent. And then some, some new modelers from Imperial College pointed out that this plan will lead to hundreds of thousands of dead people. Uh, and they completely overwhelmed NHS in short order. And then the government seemed to have realized that it, it's, it's making some errors and began instituting some fairly strict uh, distancing measures culminating in, in a kind of a lockdown, um, which is probably uh, too late for many people. But at least it's at least it's something, right? So when I talk to my doctor friends and my my the friends I have working in the healthcare system in the UK, all of them are saying something along the lines of, "We're doing the right thing, but it's kind of too late." So we're mm. we're about to take a pretty big hit. Mm. Um, I know uh, um, a friend of a friend lost his dad already. Mm. Uh, I have friends who who have lost elderly family members or acquaintances. So it's it's bad um, already. But um, hopefully in the, ne the next few weeks, the, the lockdown that they instituted will begin to, to pay off and the, the curve will flatten. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I think like obviously nobody wants anyone to die, but I, it makes me wonder like, you know, if the leader of Britain dies from this virus, what are the implications uh, not only in Britain, but globally? Like whose, whose position is going to suddenly change? Um. Another um, unpleasant Tory takes uh, <laughs> premiership, and right. many of the policies that um, Bojo represents will continue. I, I actually, I think leadership transition. I mean, this is not like a one-party authoritarian state, like uh, like 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 Israel <laughs> may seem, or like uh, Hungary has well become. Right? It's not like the death of a leader leads to a gigantic shakeup. Um, right. You know. It, in the in the event, probably still fairly unlikely that Johnson um, dies or is or is, or is made so ill by this that he simply cannot continue as prime minister. I I don't foresee a major change. So no, I guess, uh, Lord Mountbatten coup. No. <laughs> I guess I'm just like wondering, like you know, it's it's going to start sinking into some people, you know, for some people who it may not have sunk in before, if that happens. I would not underestimate. The, um, uh, the the cognitive uh, limits imposed by uh, uh, epistemic partisanship. I think that there are people who um, will, you know, it would take quite a lot to change their mind. You're going to have to tell us what epistemic partisanship is. <laughs> so epistemic meaning pertaining to knowledge and partisanship meaning pertaining to political parties. So like when I look at so many people in the U.S., if you look at the differences in, uh, you know, there's, if you... If you measure whether uh, people care about uh, or think or think that social distancing is necessary and that COVID nineteen is a big deal, and then you look at the divide uh, in terms of uh, how, how you, know, if you sort of cross reference that with party uh, party affiliation, you find that Republicans are much much more likely to say that COVID nineteen is not a big deal and that social distancing is not necessary. You also find that uh, Republicans are more likely to to blame. Um, the CDC or blame Obama for the government's poor response right now, um, whereas Democrats are most likely to blame Trump. So when we talk about epistemic partisanship, well, what we mean is that um, 
based on your party affiliation, the very things that you, you, you know about the world will be different. So um, you know, if you're a Republican, that A, COVID-19 is not very bad, and B, it's Obama's fault. Um, right. Yeah. And I, I, I think maybe if Trump died of it, that might change people's minds. But I think short of that, it, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, someone, uh, it was Katie. Katie Marshall asked if you could give some context on the political situation in Hungary. Um, so I'm simply going to repeat to you what a friend of mine who uh, lives and works there has told me, which is that um, Orban and Fidesz, the, uh, the, the ruling party. So pre prior to this, they, they, they hold an, uh, over a two-thirds majority in parliament. So they could basically do what they wanted. It was a de facto um, one-party, one-man dictatorship. But what has happened is uh, Orban has used the situation of the pandemic to declare emergency rule uh, and allow him to uh, legislate by decree. Um, without uh, without needing to you know sort of push things through parliament and he and he this is indefinite right so he can do this as long as he decides that it's necessary so what this really just does is it put, is put a, a legislative stamp on what was kind of already the case uh, which is certainly um, an escalation in the the uh, um, in the dictatorial direction of things but but it isn't like a gigantic an unforeseen shift. What it does do is uh, remove all plausible deniability from Orban that he is a one-man dictator, and it should hopefully put a lot of pressure on um, EU institutions and EU leaders to, to to actually introduce some consequences for uh, Orban and Fidesz after all this uh, after all this time. God bless George Lucas for teaching me about politics in the Star Wars prequels. Yeah, I see parallels. Um, I see parallels. <clears throat> Uh, if only one of us could do an Emperor Palpatine imitation that was worth uh, a nickel. I, I mean, in a sense, is uh, <laughs> is Boris Johnson not kind of like an evil Jar Jar Binks? Hmm. <laughs> if Jar Jar Binks was was born wealthy, I guess, and right. spoiled, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and George Lucas taught us that even if you take the big bad guy and toss him down a giant shaft where he explodes, <laughs> the problems don't go away. Oh, the George Lucas just comes back. That. <laughs> Somebody else taught us that. Yeah, okay, fair. So interesting comment in the uh, Twitch feed. Um, where did it go? What complicates the epistemic partisanship is that there is a distinct media ecosystem. It's not just the, that beliefs follow party. It's that facts follow party to a large extent. Yes, that's a very a, a very important point here. Is mm -hmm. that um, the the right wing in the U.S. is a fairly closed uh, informational ecosystem. So you know, I sit most of my day in front of my Twitter feed, uh, like just wreathed in various news sources firing off facts at me, uh, and uh, I might raise my eyebrow at uh, one or two of them, but I can just quickly uh, and reliably cross-reference information with a bunch of other sources. So I'm looking at Reuters, BBC, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, several Israeli newspapers, several British newspapers, uh, CBC, Globe and Mail, uh, National Post, right? So, so I, I, can, I can look at all sorts of things and I can judge information based on a wide range of inputs. But the, the suspicion 
that the U.S. right wing has of new sources outside of the kind of core ecosystem makes it very hard to challenge the messages um, that they say they get from Fox News and it's uh, it's dreadful talking heads. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> dreadful talking heads, indeed. And I mean, just yesterday, uh, I think was it yesterday or today, Franklin Graham pronounced that coronavirus was punish- punishment from God for our sins. And he just got to say that unchallenged on a primetime Fox show, Judge Napolitano. I mean, it may be that, you know, or Judge that, Sorry, that, uh, that gay marriage I told you that I got uh, last year. Maybe this is my fault. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Simon. <laughs> so what, what, all right, what God do we have to feed you to now then to make it stop? Usually it's the or volcano it God. <clears throat> Don't worry. We won't feed you to any God, even if, you know, even if it would stop the crisis. I'm going to be Dostoevsky on that ethical stance. I had to sell my sacrificial altar to make rent. So you, you're, we're talking about the U.S. right wing. And um, I, I want to use this to segue into something that I'm following with, um, I wouldn't say uh, a great deal of panic yet, but certainly some concern. And that is the way that the, the real fringe right, and I mean the militant right in the U.S., is uh, approaching the pandemic. So uh, there's already sort of chatter and exhortations on the militant right-wing um, uh, cesspit of the internet that uh, that uh, white supremacist activists should try to uh, infect Jews as much as possible. So they should, they should try to go to Jewish neighborhoods and and spread uh, um, COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. And there have been a couple. Um, there's been there was an, an attempted bombing of a hospital which uh, was averted after the FBI shot the, uh, the would-be attacker dead. Um, there was a train derailment in New York City where someone who thought that the uh, USS Comfort, the hospital ship that's now um, docked there, was part of some sort of global cons- or national or global conspiracy uh, and that um, this person could call attention to it by derailing a train at it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so... I'm not. I'm not sure that we are seeing the situation for some sort of real populist militancy to arise. Because to have populist militancy, you have to be able to like go outside and get together and form groups and organize. <laughs> and that's not happening as much. But the potential for people locked in their homes, uh, glued to their uh, glued to their propaganda sources of choice, forming ever more extreme, ever more paranoid. Uh, and more militant views about what's happening and what should be done is a very real possibility. And I've seen some indication that the uh, the FBI is taking this fairly seriously and sort of reprioritizing white supremacist terrorism more so than they have in the past, which is probably a good shift. I'm 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 less familiar with what's happening in Canada about this. I do know that um, ISIS has issued a travel advisory for Europe. They've suggested to ISIS members that maybe maybe don't go to Europe to do jihad for a little while because you might get sick. Mm. Um, wow. Wow. wow, yeah. Which is, which is um, epic trolling, to be sure. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but uh, there was recently just, uh, there was just a stabbing attack in, in France. So uh, terrorism is happening and nefarious actors are using the chaos uh, or trying to exploit the chaos. Um, but uh, 
but but it looks like the the big white supremacist threat is mostly in the U.S. and isn't likely to take a kind of gigantic populist form, but is certainly developing. So this brings me to my second feeder question for you: What stands out to you about the crisis? Ah. Uh, now you regret asking me to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, well, mostly because it uh, it opens up a, a, a very broad horizon of ways to answer it, and I have to come up with something interesting that I haven't already said. Yes, you do. Yes. So there are a lot of ways in which we're all fucked. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So I talked about some of the more abstract or or longer term ways in which this. Uh, this crisis will lead to potential reconfigurations in international distributions of authority and alliance. Then there are some medium-term things which I feel a little bit safer talking about. So one of which is that the UK and the EU were supposed to figure their shit out, uh, if you'll pardon my language, Mm -hmm. by the end of the year. They should have been having lots of meetings to determine uh, the shape of everything from um, uh, guaranteeing, guaranteeing trade supply to uh, to figuring out issues like security cooperation, right, right. Uh, and and intelligence sharing, and these are all now very slow. I mean, they can they can't really proceed. Uh, and so so far, um, uh, the UK government has indicated that it's not going to ask for an extension on this, uh, an extension of the current arrangements, which are legacy EU arrangements. But if that if, if if there is no extension and these deals are not worked out by the end of the year, then a whole bunch of things stop. And one of the things that we're seeing everywhere, and but especially in in the UK and EU, is that uh, even even small fluctuations in demand or supply can lead to a lot of empty shelves because supply chains are all uh, just in time, right? So if you if you know there's like a fifteen percent increase in demand for toilet paper. That that means that like out now everyone's out of toilet paper, right? And for some reason everybody made a run on on toilet roll. Like, what's with the the, you know? But but like obviously like like runs are self sustaining, right? So that some people go, oh my god, better stock up on toilet roll, and then everyone goes, oh my god, if we don't buy toilet roll now, that we'll be out, we'll be out of it, and then they go and start buying it, mm-hmm. and then even even though it was only like three panicked. Um, you know, uh, fools like like, <laughs> like everyone's wiping their ass with uh with yeah. with um uh I don't know the Times uh <laughs> with, with the Daily Mail. Yeah. I, I'm I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it's probably too good of too good of a of a fate for the Daily Mail. Um, so <laughs> so that that kind of medium term stuff stands out to me. Um, the the distinct unfriendliness of the U.S.'s relations with Canada stand out to me, and I think mm. Canadians uh, will remember this. Um, and, uh, you know, that may have knock-on effects in terms of our own supply structures. I think that a lot of countries will move toward greater self-sufficiency in some industrial areas as a result of this. And so this could lead to some transformations in uh, uh, global trade arrangements in ways that I don't feel comfortable talking about because that's uh, that's international political economy and not enough people are shooting each other. So I, I thought it was boring when I first got to study <laughs> it, so I didn't really study it. Uh, not enough explosions. <laughs> well, certainly, I feel within myself the urge to support um, political action federally, provincially, that moves towards national stockpiling of pandemic preparation supplies, permanent creation of the capacity to rapidly create 
pandemic supplies should the need arise again? I think that there was, uh, there has been a perception of uh, epidemic disease as something that happens to foreign Orientals or or like people on the dark continent of Africa or you know and so so epidemics and pandemics have been processed through a kind of racial and uh, a racial lens of distance and and foreignness and now that it's happening here I think uh, people might take it seriously right uh, because previous previous to this uh, most people's main interaction with pandemic illness is through um, the, the, the sort of stereotypical lenses of, um, news broadcasts and not, you know, not confronting the fact that they've just lost relatives and they can't even go to those relatives funerals. Uh, one of the things that I've been hearing that I find very interesting is that COVID-19 is hitting the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in both New York and Israel really hard because these communities traditionally deeply mistrust and generally ignore the government. And so they haven't been following government advice. Hmm. I heard an absolutely heartbreaking story of an ER nurse who was tending to a, a, a dying ultra-Orthodox woman. And the woman's son called and demanded that she put the speakerphone next to the now unconscious mother so that he could recite for her uh, the prayer of the dead. Um, and I saw a video of, uh, of um, ultra-Orthodox Jews some of them, so one set of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel um, coughing on the cops, the Israeli cops, as they try to enforce distance and calling them Nazis. And then another video of more conscientious Orthodox Jews calling the first bunch murderers from their balconies and windows, shouting, shouting killers down at them. And so this is, maybe this is interesting to me because I'm Jewish and I, I, I've lived in Israel. And, and, and so this is like a, like a more specific area of interest for me personally, but it will be interesting to see how, um, interesting to see how smaller communities across the world that generally haven't trusted governments might begin to do so. They might start to, to develop a greater willingness to, to take government advice on certain issues. And conversely, some communities might be totally alienated from the government, right? Like look at the degree of, of independent state action in the U.S. that has mm. become a necessity because the federal government is so useless there. Uh, so, will that lead to more autonomy in states in the future? So, well, so there, there'll be, yeah. There are even I read today now coalitions of states bar- to get forming together to create bargaining units to buy PPE wow. to stop yeah. each other from bidding them up. And somebody Just, on Twitter said, you know, if only there were some entity that exists right. in these times to help these 50 states see through see themselves through these matters yeah. some way to unite the states perhaps <laughs> so one thing that i find one thing that kind of goes back to the idea of this being a global problem but also you know a local problem is that our our society especially liberal society um, kind of individually focused, um, marketized. It's very much built around a business as usual vision of the future. So the so most of our arrangements are designed to produce a, a harmonious and wealth generating context for as many people as possible. Uh, so long as there aren't any major gigantic crises, right? Uh, and the idea of catastrophe. The idea of something catastrophic happening that causes everything to stop um, and like some sort of gigantic existential threat to face a community. I don't think that this is normally part of the way that we think about uh, political possibility 
or institutional possibility. And now we're going to have to. Mm-hmm. And some countries might be, or communities might be better at doing that than others. Um, one of my former uh, um, faculty members at the University of Toronto, uh, Dr. Aisha Ahmed, has written some a couple of good articles saying, let me tell you what it's like have, having lived in places where we do confront catastrophe and calamity more often. Like, let me tell you, let me talk you through the feelings you're going through. Let me reassure you that you don't have to be productive right now. Uh, let me tell you how you will slowly become more productive as time goes on and you get used to this as a new normal, etc. cetera. Uh, and this is all new to us here. So I, I'm not sure what sorts of political uh, changes will take place in the way that we understand our communities and the sorts of government that we want or the sorts of government that we build now that catastrophe and calamity are within our uh, political consciousness. But something tells me there's going to be changes, and I, I hope they're for the better. Here's a question that I've been thinking about. We've seen examples of the striking degree of difference that good governance is making from bad governance as this thing unfolds. Are we looking at possible futures where um, government is actually seen as a noble calling and an aspiration again? Um, if it ever was, I don't know. Um, the civil service as a, as, as a serious thing to aspire to. Maybe this is getting too specific for a, a politics question, but I don't know. Just can riff on that. Um, I don't know. Uh, I I suspect okay. that. Um, like, wouldn't that be nice? I I do suspect. So I see a lot of people using the war metaphor to talk about the the situation we're facing. We're we're we we're, we're, we're you know this is a war and. Uh, I'm not really sure who the enemy is. Uh, um, the the novel coronavirus, maybe. Um, Put more people on the battleships, quick! Oh no, wait. Well, but so 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 who's the army in this metaphor? Well, the army, um, our valiant soldiers and defenders, our healthcare personnel, mm-hmm. and I think so. This war metaphor. So first of all, this produced some absolutely like fucking stupid outcomes in in the UK, where it's a war. We've got to act like it's the Blitz. Everybody continue as usual because that's how you show resilience. So that was <laughs> that was um, dismaying to see, and it's like, oh my god, is this the only frame of reference that you people have for, 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 for collective action? But but once everyone kind of gets over that, um, the war metaphor is uh, potent because it's a metaphor for uh, collective action, mobilization mm. toward a co- against a common threat, mm-hmm. toward a common outcome, the willingness to endure hardship, the idea that everybody has to, has to, uh, has to make sacrifices and our army, our healthcare personnel. And so instead of maybe in the future celebrating, uh, soldiers and, and as the U S will do, like let them board planes first, continually thank them. Maybe we'll see a greater appreciation for, um, healthcare providers and not just doctors, but like, like nurses and lab techs and, people doing the difficult logistical jobs right now that it's these people who are our new heroes mm, grocery and, store workers janitors. yeah mm. you know um like uh i went for a, a, a takeaway coffee at one of my favorite local coffee shops in vancouver and i said do you, do you have people coming in here saying like this is the only getting a coffee to go from this place is like their only sense of normalcy and the guy says yeah like i feel like i'm actually performing a community service here and i'm happy to come here each day despite the mm-hmm. risk because I feel like this is one of the few comforts that people have during an unfamiliar time. And I think that hopefully, wouldn't it be nice if all of us 
began to appreciate the a vital role that uh, that people in menial jobs <laughs> play in in letting us feel at home and comfortable and right. safe. Yeah, I've yeah, yeah. I've certainly been letting them know myself more than usual. I mean, I'm I'm a person who says thank you when I get off the bus all the time, but yeah. now even getting my groceries, I tell them I appreciate your work. Like very specifically say things like that. Because they're, mm. again, putting themselves on the front line so that we can get food. And it needs to happen. They're probably not paid great. And they probably get treated like dirt a lot of the times. And I want to let them know that at least I give a crap. But at the same time, um, I am a little concerned about the war metaphor here. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as I like the idea of of treating, of, of shifting from, from uh, uh, you know, Armed our military personnel to healthcare workers and supermarket workers as our you know the new soldiers are. Um, I'm concerned by uh, by the war metaphor because um, like, like this isn't a war. There isn't uh, you know wars are political situations in which we in, we try to resolve conflicts over uh, over outcomes and over moral problems uh, through force of violence. And so as potent as it may be to mobilize everyone around this idea of a war, we've seen with the war on terror and the war on drugs that trying to wage war against abstract things yeah. or things that aren't really other political entities runs the risk of like massive investment of resources. It runs the risk of militarizing this. Like the more this is a war, the more people might be ready to deploy uh, military personnel to enforce lockdowns maybe or uh, to manage disaster responses. And um, some, you know, sometimes the military is the is organizationally and logistically the the entity best able to manage a disaster situation. But um, I'm hoping that will not that will not ever be the case for us. And and so so yeah. So I would say that the the war metaphor is kind of a double edged sword. And uh, my my friend Eric, who teaches at Carleton, has just written a little a tweet thread about this and recently a blog post so if you go to eric van reithoven's twitter feed you can find it or on my twitter feed i've, I've retweeted it uh it would be simon underscore the underscore pratt um so this so i encourage reading and thinking about this and it would be nice to see some exploration of alternative metaphors or alternative frames of collective action or collective mobilization than than the war one as useful as it might be or as as motivating as it might be. We've never had to craft one before. We're, we're literally having to create our own new narrative since this event is just so singular in all of our lives. Great. If, if the outcome of this is that we come up with a different frame of reference than war, a new frame of reference <laughs> yeah. for collective, like if our new, if we come up with the metaphor of pandemic, pandemic response as a way to understand collective action and community defense against uh, a great danger and a disaster, then then that would be inspiring to me. That would give me a lot more hope for uh, the longer term threat of climate change because I feel that the fact because climate change isn't a war, maybe people are less are less able to understand how to mobilize and come together to fight it. But so, if, but if we conceive of climate change as like a very long term pandemic about to happen, maybe maybe that will put us in a better position. Mm -hmm. You mean all those, all that? firing of weapons at clouds has not been effective i've been making some terrible mistakes if you just if you just fire enough ordnance at those you know cumulonimbus cloud formations eventually they'll disperse mm. there's there's you klingon wisdom about hours, this though. yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> the, the Klingons understand this. The, the wind does not respect a fool, Torin. Oh, that's right. And today is First Contact Day. Speaking of oh. metaphors that have been offered in popular culture. Wow. Um, I am very ready for there to be as much Star Trek discussion as possible in figuring out our responses. But I think um, my students are now too young to have any Star Trek familiarity. So I've tried to like I've tried to um, you know make make next generation DS nine references to my students, uh, <laughs> and and no one ever gets it. Have you got any, Netflix? Any, Come on. How about uh, Picard or Discovery references? I I pretend that Discovery didn't happen. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I may or may not have watched it, but I I, I do not know of what you speak. Right. Um, Picard, I have some mixed feelings on, um, although. Now that you bring up Picard, I have been, I'm going to talk about AI now, uh, <laughs> because uh, I've noticed that one of the one of the consequences of the need for contact tracing has been the use of invasive surveillance systems and mm. uh, AI-driven algorithms to um, to to try to engage in contact tracing or to manage uh, some of the more complex healthcare uh, informational needs. Are these and apps that alert tracing. you when you're near someone? So there's that. Uh, that would be the kind of the extreme South Korean response. But also I saw uh, a, a couple news stories. Um, I think it's Simona uh, Guerrera is, is the person on, on the academic who's been publicizing this. Um, although I can't remember for sure. Could be wrong about that. She may have just been the person who retweeted it. Um, but the UK is, is now contracting or about ready to contract to Palantir. Um, some of their uh, NHS information management stuff. So, you oh, know, great. and and Israel has been using its counterterrorism surveillance system run by uh, Shavak, uh, uh, the General Security Service, to, to to let people know when they've been near someone who who is infected. So so the the crisis situation doesn't, you know, could be it can be exploited and is being exploited by governments to um, install much more invasive um, surveillance technologies. And these might help in the short term, but if we're if we are willing to accept that they help in the short term and to accept them in the short term, we better be aware of them and treat them as a, as a as a truly exceptional measure. Because in the longer term, we may find ourselves with considerably less um, privacy or control over our data. And um, even just uh, we were talking about this in private earlier, but I was saying that I, I'm very reluctant to use Zoom because Zoom um, has been collecting and marketizing huge amounts of user data. So also, if we're talking about the, uh, the surveillance situation here and the, the AI situation, if we have to um, continue with social distancing or physical distancing well into the next year as we wait for a vaccine, we will become increasingly reliant on digital technologies and on um, algorithmically supported um, uh, uh, sort of mitigation measures and in the process we could see um a lot sort of much more deeper and, and and invasive harvesting and use of our data both by data both by companies and data mining firms and mm -hmm. by governments yeah the, all these people who will see this as an opportunity rather than like well both an opportunity and a problem but they will see their opportunity to position themselves mm -hmm. in whatever yeah. the new structure that our society has based on our response to this yeah yeah uh, use also, signal like, messenger people that's my when advice. when, when uh, trudeau announced in his morning briefing that uh, amazon would be 
delivering PPE and not like Pirolator, like jaw actually drop, like what? Uh, and and so uh, imagine that, but for a whole host of digital technologies and uh, and and service service delivery, not just in the physical form, but in the sort of digital form, um, that would be something that would disturb me because I, I I'm not actually convinced that the private sector should be handling these things and that the private sector has our best interests in mind. Whereas I've actually been, I'm I'm increasingly uh, um, comfortable with with government in certain respects as I see. Uh, as I see um, Bonnie Henry's briefings, I think, wow, like, is this what government could be? As, as Rob was saying earlier, like, actually, I, I have a lot of trust and respect for this. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in very good hands. And that's mm -hmm. just evident day after day after day after day. And it's sort of, oh, this isn't what Reagan told us about government. This isn't <laughs> it at all. <laughs> they're from the government and they actually are here to help. And they're helping yeah. massively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it's been nice to see the changes in America where where several of them are right. Like I, I totally get their federal response seems to be mostly garbage, but like New York's uh, Governor Cuomo seems to have stepped up. He really gets it these days. Uh, he's out there taking it very seriously, seems to be doing his job. And like it, it's nice to see that. It's nice to see Americans in government who aren't aren't just there to help out their rich buddies get even richer, which seems to I be mean, what most American politicians want to do. So yes, like Cuomo seems unwilling to leave uh, New York residents to die. But on the other hand, he seems certainly willing to continue um, unjust and, and deeply racist um, uh, criminal justice measures that mm -hmm. see people thrown into death trap prisons, like yeah. Rikers, where uh, they will catch COVID, they, they, will, they, will, mm. they will develop COVID-19 at like 20 times the, the baseline rate of the population or something, right? So, um, so I think that I've yet to see a uh, response from the US that strikes me as um, any, anything remotely resembling okay. best practices coming out of, say, Germany or, or, or Canada or BC, right? Like, I think that uh, what we're mostly seeing in the US is that the US is deeply pathological at every level of government. And even its best responses are still really bad in a right. whole bunch of ways, um, in, in ways that, that, that I, I find actually profoundly depressing. And so I try to think about them only for a limited period of time each day. Yeah, I guess sure. I guess my bar for American politicians is super super low. So when I see them yeah. even do a half-ass job that takes it sort of seriously, I go, "Oh wow, check that out! Oh, they're not all totally terrible. He's only partly terrible." I mean, one of my one of my favorite stories has been the University of Washington, where they just got so tired of waiting for CDC to bring tests. Mm -hmm. They just said, screw it, we're just going to create a testing lab and we're going to mm -hmm. get a testing program rolling for, for Washington State. And I think that's played a huge role in helping Washington in particular get a handle on their outbreak and start to turn the corner, which is becoming more and more evident that they are either near or past their peak, which, and thank goodness, because they were on a runaway train before that. And so, I mean, one thing that, that, might happen as the world looks at um, the U.S. Um, sort of shooting itself in the foot over and over and over again uh, on this is uh, 
the possibility that countries will begin to look for other international partners and become yeah, yeah. yeah very very suspicious this was our hegemon of, yeah hmm. <laughs> so some people have suggested that uh china is ready to swoop in and be the new international international uh, the, the new uh responsible international uh hegemon of choice oh, and really? and and i i am a bit skeptical of that especially mm-hmm. as information sort of slowly emerges that china might have under underreported their uh deaths and cases by about a factor so uh, factor, if, a factor you know, of what? Of, of 10. Oh, so, yeah. okay, one log, boom. Order of yeah. magnitude, yeah, wow. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, so so um, so Reuters came out with the story, and then there was a, a bunch of intelli- American intelligence sources who, who leaked this, that that uh, it might be closer to like like thirty to 40,000 dead people. And the thing is, is that that sort of information about just how many people are dying of COVID-19 would have been pretty crucial for other governments to have as early as possible right absolutely so so the ability so the the readiness of other countries to 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 trust that that uh you know forming enduring partnerships with china is in their best interest uh i'm not sure that there'll be a lot of that trust so that's but, interesting because the 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 mortality figures out of italy were so much higher than those out of china and yeah. i remember just scrambling thinking you know i had taken on faith the chinese figures were accurately reported and i thought i wonder what the relevant different explanations are that could account for this mortality increase in italy versus china and it sent a lot of doctors just chasing uh rabbits through fields fruitlessly when oh no actually this is just a damn lethal virus and it's just a lot of people yeah i mean i i'm not a china expert and uh this these are just a few news stories so this isn't do not take this as truth. Take this as a, as a plausible possibility among several. Uh, but yes, you know, um, I think a lot of us should be generally suspicious of the data that we uh, on cases. Right? Some countries have been very good at producing um, reliable, consistent test data. So obviously, South Korea, Germany, um, many many people are going untested in the UK. Uh, and I think quite a few people in Italy were untested. They were only people who required hospitalization, if I understand. So the actual, so one of the, you know, so I think it's hard to look at uh, different countries um, reporting on this and then make general conclusions. It, right. you, you, what you need is to talk to a lot of different country experts who can contextualize the uh, country-specific systems for testing and hospitalization and then also account for uh, the possibility of underreporting uh, or various forms of uh, of sort of government um, censorship or or um, data manipulation, which is obviously yeah. going to be more of a problem in some places than others. And even as a testing regimen um, <clears throat> within a specific locale, its goals change over time as the goals pandemic control change. So initially, the strategy in BC was containment, and testing was focused on anybody getting off of airplanes and individuals around them. Um, that then once we shifted to the, the realization that there was significant community spread, all right, now we're in a phase of mitigation, we're not in a phase of containment anymore. So our testing strategy has to change. And we have to fall back on more general advice for people with respiratory symptoms. If you have them, assume you have the disease, stay mm-hmm. at home, we have to focus our testing efforts on healthcare workers. So you can't even really compare testing figures from mid-February to mid-March and say that you're getting a, you know, an apples to apples comparison because so to test, yeah. So across countries, that's going to be uh, an even more difficult problem. 
Hmm. I mean, I, I would say that um, earlier on, especially during my immensely boring quarantine period, uh, you know, I was sort of I, I had one of my one of my screens is sort of constantly taken up with this uh, this self updating um, fancy looking like situation room style uh, GIS map showing me oh, uh, yeah. case rates and. I've, I've just basically stopped checking that because I no longer find it useful as uh, because because of changing and testing and also because of uh, how the more I learn about different testing strategies and data problems, the less useful I find those maps. And right. so yeah. I, if anyone anyone else who's kind of glued to that, unless you're really bored and in quarantine, in which case you should maybe, I don't know, do yoga instead. Uh, actually, as a general rule, I, I would suggest yoga and then maybe like an unreasonable number of burpees. Trying to do lots of burpees these days. Uh, Reasonable numbers of burpees. Did you try the death by burpees exercise that I uh, suggest? I did, um, and uh, I, I feel I feel kind of out of shape, uh, so I didn't get too far. Um, now that I'm no longer confined, I have a, I do a daily run around Trout Lake, but um, um, I've been. I've oh, been, we're in the same neighborhood. Uh, yeah, uh, commercial drive area, and but um, when it, when the weather is uh, shit, I've been doing uh, um, seeing how many how many uh, if I can. How long does it do a hundred burpees? So I can sort of try to, try to bring that down to, uh, under ten minutes. Okay. Um, so my hope is like I'll, like when I'm eventually allowed to train uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu again, in like God knows when, um, I'll be like super super mobile from all the yoga, and I'll just be this like cardio machine from all of the burpees and sprints I've been doing. Um, I won't know how to do it anymore, so flail around uselessly. But at least I'll be I'll be able to do that for a very long period of time with a great deal of uh, range of motion. <laughs> I hooked up my Connect for the first time in like five years. Oh, <laughs> doing that Star Wars dance party that Joe hates so much. <laughs> oh my God, I'm Han Solo. So yeah. we're, Han gonna Solo. Have, we're gonna have to. Oh! Yeah. This reminds me, we're probably gonna get have to get somebody on here who um, can help us all stay in shape while we're mm -hmm. confined. <laughs> I think that's a that's an issue. Uh in in the Hong Kong flu outbreak of 1998, there was significantly lower mortality in individuals who had moderate level physical fitness and they mm. defined that as working out about 3 times a week. If you worked out less than that, you had higher mortality. If you worked out more than that, you had higher mortality. So something about elite levels of fitness also ended up being a vulnerability factor. So mm. you got to get people moving towards yeah. that that top of the U curve where they're moderately fit. And well, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not there right. I mean, uh, my goal is usually to be, to be immoderately fit, but I think I can safely say I'm pretty far from like an elite level of fitness um, to, to, um, to, to, uh, uh, to turn this back to uh, an international relations issue right. um, for, for, for a moment. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is, um, as people deal with the boredom and mental health challenges of being stuck at home all the time, mm -hmm. they are increasingly immersed in a very international information environment. So my mother, in whose condo uh, I and my, my husband certainly, uh, currently are, uh, are staying until we move into our sublet, uh, you know, she's often showing me news stories about um, South America or about Europe. Uh, and and I, I'm frequently checking in with my colleagues from Italy and Spain in particular, to ask how their families are surviving. Um, I, I, you know, and and the, the the stories that I see people talking about, even if they're Canadians who aren't, you know, like international people, uh, you know, who do, who do a lot of travel for work, uh, is a great deal more awareness of and engagement with 
global news stories, which kind of feeds back to the the way that this is a, being experienced as a global event. But I wouldn't I wouldn't downplay the the fact that part of part of the global nature of this event is just that everybody's bored and at home, so all they have is their internet, and the internet has a way of collapsing geographic distances, right? Collapsing physical distances, mm-hmm. projecting people into uh, a social geography that that like that doesn't kind of ignores it doesn't ignore linguistic boundaries, but does ignore, ignore geographic ones or physical mm-hmm. geographic ones, I should say. Yeah, I know that we've at least got people from Poland watching right now. Uh, Witchy Peach did a host on us, which means anybody watching her Twitch channel is automatically seeing this on theirs. Mm-hmm. And I know she's in Poland. Uh, and we've got uh, a doctor from New York in chat. Uh, yeah, people from all over the place. And, and I agree with you on that. I have a question, and I know that this is going to be difficult to predict because we're still figuring out all of this. But as a renter who tends to be relatively low income, what the heck are we going to do about rent in the next several months? How is this? What is the new normal going to be about that? Because as time goes on, less and less people are just going to be able to pay their rent because they're not working. So um, unless this starts to involve a great deal of uh, terrorism, um, I'm not sure that that rent is really in my lane. Okay. Although, uh, although what, what once once the uh, the rent strikers start suicide bombing, um, you should definitely reach out to me. Okay. Um, but speaking personally, because I had to sublet an apartment here um, after after um, you know the the the, the queer B&B, I had to, like, I'm subletting a place, right? I don't want to live with my my mother for for obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, wait, no, that came out wrong. <laughs> because <Wow>. because she's. <laughs> Because she's older and vulnerable. <laughs> uh, um, Your mother's not older. Tell us how that time travel yeah, works. Uh, you know, so, 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 um, she's muttering to my to my right. <laughs> yes. Oh, we hear her. Uh, so, we can hear it. So, we hear I, her. so I was looking at paying like double rents, and my rent in in Bristol is just as high as rents on one bedrooms are here in Vancouver, mm-hmm. which is hi uh so i asked my landlord for a rent reduction and she she had my rent for two months and okay. some you know uh, i'm choosing to think of this as kindness rather than uh, a general calculation that many landlords are making which is if it's all or nothing what what are the odds that i just get nothing mm-hmm. right uh, and I'm, I'm sure as hell surprised that like like uh like like doug ford is the one to say uh if you don't have the money to pay your rent don't pay it like mm-hmm. when tories are telling us we have to pay rent um that's shocking uh so but i suggest i, I suspect the the kind of long-term effects like this be that like rent becomes lower right Lo- okay, um, people, lower. If, if people can't afford high rents landlords will start trying to charge them much lower rents so that they can get something right right uh i doug think ford um has, yeah just to interject for a second doug ford has been a, a thoroughly pleasant surprise on the covid19 i have to say um, I disagree. I find nothing pleasant about Doug Ford. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm surprised, um, but also uh, populist leaning into economic populism. Like that's not actually that much of a shocker. Um, and I find him and his government loathsome. Um, that's kind of <laughs> the end of it, really. All right. <laughs> Good. Yeah. He's awful. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. So 
I guess will so if rents get lower, does that mean that banks then have to lower mortgages, which people are paying for those rents? A lot of people, anyway, not everybody. Many people outright own their rental properties, but a lot of people are paying mortgages on those properties and they expect the rent to cover it. And if the rent's now lower, does that just mean that they're going to be? Uh, I, I saw a big Twitter thing from some fairly socialist people going, "Hey, guess what?" Uh, people who get their money from rental income, that was an investment and your investment is not guaranteed to make a profit. So guess what? Right now you don't, you, you get to make less. Uh, and I, but I, that can't carry on forever, right? We need to hit some new equilibrium somehow. So um, my attempts at uh, political philosophy are boring and underinformed, and so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare you them. Okay. What What I do uh, one way for mine me are to exciting approach, and uninformed. Uh, uh, We're going to live in rockets. I, yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone, everyone thinks that their 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 political philosophy is exciting and, and uninformed. Um, uh, except those except those who actually have have met exciting and informed political theorists, uh, as I've I've been uh, privileged to meet, and then. You know, afterwards you go like, huh, like I really don't know this shit, do I? Uh, but there is a question to ask about what happens to uh, international finance because a whole lot of people are not going to make make payments that they they thought they're going to be able to make. Yeah. And I suspect that that banks and financiers will have to adjust their expectations, and they will do so. Um, and you know, th there will be a recession, uh, and and it might not last very long. You know, my my investments have taken a big hit. At least I have investments, right? But I'm I'm hoping not to throw yeah. them anytime soon. Woohoo! Paid um, off being poor. Yeah. Sort of. uh, and you know, I don't know when they'll recover, but they probably will at some point. But yeah, I, you know, I think that um, one thing that I'll want to look at going forward is whether uh, differences in how well governments weather. The uh, the outcomes of the situation and how whether how how well their economies uh, restart after this and when they restart whether this leads to uh, changes in the uh, flow of capital and um, finance across across borders right mm -hmm. because it may make new places seem like safer safer bets it may you know premature economy uh, restarting might might actually cause like financial misery uh in unforeseen ways so uh like i said like not enough people were killing each other for me to really want to <laughs> study international political economy but um like as you sort of reference by talking about the, the the mortgage and debt side of rent collection on housing there's a really complex um finance and lending system that needs to adapt to the situation and right, right. now everyone is Kind of staying home and so we're you know we're not really thinking about that because we're too busy thinking about where our next paycheck comes from and the toilet paper yeah and uh and where we're going to source toilet paper. look go to small grocery stores go go to go to asian grocery stores they're, they're, they're well stocked like yeah like i like you know otherwise you have to go and like inter intercept people at safeway and, I, like, I said this in a previous yeah. episode i've given up on toilet paper it's there's a shower in the same room everything's fine why waste Italians paper? had their bidets. Italian Italian households are really big on. If bidets. I could afford a warm water one, I'd do it. I'm I'm terrified of squirting cold water up there. So do you, do you know what a washlet is? Have you ever been no. to Japan? No. You should you should treat yourself. I can Google. There's an internet right in front. Washlet L E T. Yeah. Yeah. 
Toto Washlet. Meet the Toto Washlet. Oh, free advertising. Refresh your routine. Play video. Nope, not going to play the video. <laughs> what? <laughs> not going to hit play video. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I'll check that out. Have later. we well and truly exhausted this conversation? But I'm once again yeah, on no, the toilet. Listen, we got to oh, talk about my butt every episode. It's clean, we, Rob. We it's don't. Clean. We, we don't. It's cleaner than it's been in years because of this. Oh, here we go. I, I'll say it again. Toilet paper is terrible. Stop. He can't stop. It's, toilet paper is terrible. Hey, we've had the, the serious conversation. Now I get to talk about how toilet paper is terrible. It's you terrible need, like, and it's you, made from you like need other unserious topics, though. It can't just be okay. your shiny butt. Let me, let me talk about my <laughs> Minecraft game and how much time I've been able to invest in that. Yeah, there you go. The one thing that came out of this pandemic, a cleaner my butt. I mean, there, there, there's, um, I think there are interesting implications for public hygiene here. Um, I've, been, I've been greeting people with uh, live long and prosper because um, I can't shake their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, did we, did, did we all uh, pay attention to the whole uh, Trump handshake masculinity performance thing where he like grabs people's hands and then yanks them forward and there was this whole thing where uh trudeau didn't let him and you could like see like trudeau's kind of bicep bulging as he Mm -hmm. kept trump there was like a follow-up news story that says trudeau actually trained this with his (laughs) aides he trained to resist the 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 dickhead trump handshake uh this, this makes me think this makes me think a lot about um diplomatic performances and and hygiene right so like um what are some of the ways in which um physical closeness and physical interaction feature in our politics and how will this change going forward will this change um uh the kind of diplomatic pageantry around summits will we see more international diplomacy conducted remotely um and i will say that like like often like getting getting much people into a room i mean it matters you know if you're arguing with your spouse, as I of course never do, um, you know, have, having a conversation in person is much much more effective than doing it over WhatsApp uh, and exchanging passive aggressive messages, uh, which of course I never do. Um, so, you know, is is there a diplomatic equivalent of this? What do we see? What's what's the outcome of uh, social distancing and and voting? Um, you know, how is the GOP going to exploit this to further advantage Trump in the November election? Um, if the UK does manage to ne- somehow negotiate something via via digital distance, what does that mean for the future of international summits? There are there are these sorts of questions where, um, to you know, I don't know whether whether uh, bum hygiene is as sort of significant as. At this point, I leave. My, my mother's <laughs> my mother is leaving the the room. Uh, she's been on her computer uh, somewhere to the right. Um, <laughs> In this in this small house, where where the one side the one side of this conversation that the, she hears are my responses, you know. But but the question of um how how is our new hyper awareness of hygiene going to influence politics is a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, maybe they'll have conversations about bidets and have the Europeans try to get the Americans to use them. And yeah, yeah, I, that's all I got. All I got is butt talk because that's that's been my biggest problem these days and my biggest triumph at the same time is there anything you want to adjourn this conversation with any final <laughs> questions you want to put to me before i, I... know how torrent's butt is my how about something more like uh, <laughs> a realistically 
what what are some sources of realistic optimism in global relations? I don't want the Pollyanna scenario, but where where do you see real rays of light? We'll get through this. Yeah, and um, as a consequence of getting through it, we may learn to be together and work together. In, in ways that will serve us very well moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, like and it will suck, but then it will hopefully suck less. It will suck less. You heard it here. All right. That's our university lecturer, Dr. <laughs> Simon. University. Thanks for showing up. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, can I hang up, hang this up now and go get some food? <laughs> Uh, you have our permission okay. yeah uh sure yep. let's we'll do Your a real quick goodbye permission. first uh i think there was discussion that we're going to start an hour earlier next week uh we're gonna seven o'clock p.m uh pacific time is the time when everybody goes out and does a big cheer for our health workers and our idea was to start our next episode pretty much immediately after that cheer we're going to let the cheer happen and then we're going to start our stream does that sound right rob it works for me, okay. yeah, because I like to be out on the patio doing the cheer. Yeah. So uh, rush, cheer, rush in here, hop on the mic. I, I could even probably stream from my phone the cheer, or you could do it yourself to it or something like that uh, so that we could let people see that before we start. That might be fun. We'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, but just, just a note to everybody, we're going to be starting at 7 o'clock instead of 8 o'clock uh, next week. And, and that'll be the new normal. Oh, <laughs> International relations already improving by one hour. All right. Thanks, Simon. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody.